Well, this morning as we start a new series, it's, a, I think, a good time to remind you that uh, we believe the Word of God uh, should be read, understood, known, loved by everybody. And we believe that the Word of God is living and active and powerful, that, that the Scriptures are not just letters printed on a page, on a piece of paper. Rather, it is the living Word of God. And so we want the Word of God to be disseminated freely. We believe it's powerful and that it changes lives. So if you're here today and you don't own a copy of the Word, if you don't own a copy of the Scriptures, take one. Look at the back of the pew in front of you. You'll see a Bible there. Take it. It's yours. Or if there's someone that you have in your life that, that's going through something and you know, hey, if they could get a copy of God's Word, it would, I know they would read it. By all means, take it for them. Okay? Freely we have received the Word, so freely we give it. Okay? So the Bible, my goodness, it is the thing that makes the difference in our lives because by it we know the will of God. By it we are introduced to our Savior so I can't overstate the value of Scripture for you, for your loved ones, for your family. So again, if you don't have one, a copy of the Bible, take, take from our back of our pew. Okay, we're happy to have you do it. Now today, in the bulletin, I knew that if we're going to look at just verse 1. Okay, but I knew that for the reading of God's Word, if I just put one verse in there, I mean, y'all would feel like you're getting gypped. So... <laughs> So we're going to look at, for the sake of today, we're going to look at, we're going to read verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, but for our message, we're looking at verse 1, because one of the things I think is important to do is to not overlook that the introductions to these letters are the inspired word of God just as much as the content of the letters, but it's sad to me that in, even in so many of my commentaries, may, maybe a sentence or a, or a paragraph at most will be said about the introduction and then they want to get on with the letter. It's like, no, take your time. You, God reveals things to us even in these opening words. Okay? All right, so let's look today. James 1, verses 1 through 4. Where we are told... James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this book. We ask that you would be with us, that we would hear it, believe it, love it, and apply it. Grant that we would walk in accordance with the totality of your scriptures. For Christ's sake, we pray it. 
Amen. All right, so brothers and sisters, today we have a treat. Uh, this being the first Sunday of a, of a new book, we're going to sort of look at some of the context and background. But, but, but really, the real treat is this. Did you know that when you read the book of James, you are reading what virtually every scholar in all of church history agrees was the first New Testament book to be written? Penned before Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Penned before Galatians. Penned before 1 Thessalonians. Those were the other early books. James, we have the earliest book of the New Testament. Now, this book, though, has, uh, it, it's, it's a, throughout much of church history, it's been a love it or hate it type of book, okay? Um, famously, uh, Martin Luther, in his preface to his German New Testament, so we're not just talking about in some isolated, you know, rambling in one of his table talks. No, in the preface to his New Testament, he was like, James is a right strawy epistle. And he, straw, he's taking that from 1 Corinthians 3 where, where there's a foundation been built and if anyone builds on it with, with wood or straw, it'll be burned up. And um, he, he said there's, it's like the author threw things together chaotically and... There's no smell or flavor of the gospel in it. So Martin Luther, the towering intellect that he was, and we should always be a bit circumspect and a bit hesitant, a bit slow to come out swinging when we find ourselves disagreeing with one of these titans of the faith. But nonetheless, what we have to understand is that for a lot of church history, Martin Luther's opinion has kind of carried sway. That, that it's there, it's, it's, it's inspired, it is scripture, but it's kind of an enigma. Don't really know what to do with it. And, and when Martin Luther says it does not have the smell or flavor of the gospel, you got to understand that what he's talking about is what is now a Lutheran distinctive where the driving paradigm of their whole system of theology is what we would call the law-gospel distinction. Now, the Reformed tradition acknowledges the distinction, but it doesn't raise it, it doesn't elevate it to the status that it is in the Lutheran churches. Law in the Lutheran paradigm is anything that God commands. You look at the scriptures, any passage that tells you to do something, that is law, period. That's not, even a, that, that's not even an oversimplified statement. You find a passage that tells you to do something, that's law, period. And law, in the Lutheran scheme, is bad. It's all, always condemnatory. Gospel, on the other hand, is what sometimes in our tradition we would call the indicative that is what God has done for you. It's Jesus dying on the cross. It's the offering of forgiveness. It's what God has done for you. It's the righteousness of Christ that is credited to you as an alien righteousness. It's all the stuff that good sola fide, sola gratia type people love 
gives us the warm fuzzies. Now, we are shaped by our past. And if you think about, if you think about Luther and his, and his background, and I mean, the incredible torment he went through, the incredible anxiety and dread he had while he was a nun or a, a monk. Sorry, that was a little <laughs> anachronistic, right? He could only have been a, a, a monk back then. He couldn't have self-identified as a, as a nun in those days. But when you consider his background and, and how he viewed God as just almost this, almost this taunting figure imposing rules, you could see why Luther was so elated at the good news of what God has done. But to this day, one of the criticisms that oftentimes gets leveled at Lutherans is that they're antinomian. That I've talked, I have had a great many co-workers and peers and friends that are Lutheran pastors, and, and they have a sharp distinction between justification and sanctification in two categories. And, and sanctification is in the same category where for a lot of evangelicals, most doctrines are, meaning it's optional. And they call us legalists for saying that sanctification is a part, is a part of the process of, of salvation. For them, there's a huge gulf. Now, why do I mention that? Why do I even bring it up? Because, as in most things, you have one extreme, but then you also have another extreme. The people who have really gravitated towards the book of James, have unfortunately been what we might call pietists. This movement within Christianity that wants to see our relationship with God primarily and principally evidenced and based by how serious we are in our displays of piety. The things we do and all that stuff. And pietism does not rest in what God has done for us. It instead wants to find its rest in our displays. How serious are you? And you see the pietistic impulse of evangelicalism when you see the impulse, for example, that, that someone is less spiritual. Why? Because they haven't come to church every time the doors are open. If there's an activity, you should be there. You know what I'm talking about? And if you're somewhere else, there's a, there's a question. Why wasn't it a priority for you? So there's been two extremes. One that gravitates towards and says, man, it's our deeds that matter, not our doctrines. There's the other side that says, this book is an enigma because it kind of conflicts with all of our preconceived, all, all the doctrines that are laid out so beautifully in Romans and in Galatians and in Ephesians. What are we to do? Well, the, the answer, of course, is to ride the horse without falling over to the left or to the right. What, what is this book talking about? Well, it, it is true that the book of James does have a lot of brief, you know, three or four verse exhortations that are put together, and, and, and it doesn't have the, the, the linear coherency of one of Paul's letters. It's true. It's true that 
several scholars have said it reads kind of like a New Testament version of Proverbs. But what is this book really fundamentally about? It's about modeling a living faith. A living faith. One of the conflicts that, that kind of overshadows is what we're going to see in, in, in the future chapter, chapter 2, about the relationship of faith and works. And, and, and that, that's a huge, we're going to spend some time on that because it's important. But you got to understand that what Paul wrote, he wrote to the churches of Galatia, which were facing a very different circumstance, a very different problem than what James is writing about. Paul struggled against the impulse towards legalism. But I'll tell you what, James is a shotgun blast to nominalism. Nominalism is this, is this view of Christianity, of the faith, of the Christian life that, that everybody says is wrong. Everybody says it's wrong to be nominal, but un, inexplicably almost, there's this tendency in the human heart where we are just drawn to it. And what, what is that? It means nominalism means you name the right thing. What does it mean fundamentally? That, you, that with your mouth, you're able to regurgitate back all the right things. I believe in Jesus. I can recite the Apostles' Creed. I can, I've been baptized and I, and I, and I, I went into the church and I'm, I, yeah, I believe that. But then there's no, no, nothing in your life that backs that up. And that problem plagues every tradition. This book is a shotgun blast to that. What this book is really laying out is that if you are claiming Christ, if you have been born again, and yes, the concept of being born again is here. So I do take umbrage with what Luther says about no flavor of the gospel. Are you kidding me? It's there. It's true. It's not the focus, but it's there. But if you're claiming to be born again, and have no fruit. James straight up says, such a faith will not save you. James does a great job of helping us understand that when the Bible speaks of faith, it is not speaking of mere intellectual assent. In fact, you'll read that he says that's the kind of faith that demons have. So this book, with all of its wonderful practical tips, with all of its convicting focus on what true piety looks like, this book is a very helpful reminder that a faith that saves is a faith that's alive, and a faith that's alive is a faith that has fruit. Now, that, that concept is not foreign from Paul. It's just not the emphasis in Paul. But God in his mercy gives us all the parts of Scripture so that taken together, we have the whole package. So brothers and sisters, 
Please never be tempted. Don't for a minute get tempted to buy when one side or another tells you that it's doctrine or deeds. No, there's no, there's no dividing or divorcing those two. True doctrine and true deeds go together. Okay? That is what our faith is. We have been saved. And because we have been saved, we are born again. And the evidence that we're born again is that there's fruit. We don't produce fruit hoping that that will get us to be born again. That's putting the cart before the horse. No, the horse is true doctrine. The cart is true deeds. Okay? Now, James, as he begins his letter, this is one of what we would call the Catholic or general epistles. It's, it's not addressed to a specific congregation. It's addressed to Christians, to, to believers at large. Um, James, in his opening verse here, just like Paul does so often, he gives us a great window of insight into what's to come. And he wants to set the stage for us so that right out of the gate we understand how the faith that we confess, how it has impact. And the number one way that he shows us, and it's going to touch, be touched on by themes later in the book, is his understanding of self-identity. Now, I understand that identity is a modern term, but he, he shows us what it looks like. Who is James? There's lots of people in the Bible named James. There's James, the brother of John, one of the apostles. There's James, son of Alphaeus. Okay, there's Jameses. But the James here, the James who wrote this book, the James that is in the book of Acts, that this book is referencing is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was one of Mary and Joseph's sons. Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, of course. But James is one of his brothers, as was Jude, who wrote the New Testament book, Jude. But what's interesting about James and Jude is that neither of them, according to the New Testament, believed in Jesus while he was doing his earthly ministry. It says very specifically. And in fact, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is that the Bible shows, the New Testament shows, that, that, that even Mary didn't quite fully understand because she was one of the people trying to talk him off the edge. She and her sons show up to try to talk Jesus down. Calm down. You're going to get yourself in trouble. So his brother, think about that. In the culture of that day, he would have, as a young child, they didn't have, <laughs> believe it or not, people, there was an age when not everybody had their own bedroom. I, I've been to some of these pioneer towns, you know, that you can still see them. You might call them ghost towns. And houses were like one room in many cases. Everybody slept on the same bed. Imagine sharing a bed with Jesus as a little boy. He's your brother. Growing up with him. 
And when, so when Jesus says a prophet has honor everywhere but in his hometown, you, you see why, you, 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 you saw his, his runny nose, you saw him, you know, when he was sick, you, you, the, the closeness of the ordinary. You may understand why it would have been hard for them to believe in Jesus, just growing up with him, so familiar. And if you think for a minute that the response of sinful people to seeing a sinless person is one of awe, no. We think those holy two goody two-shoes, we don't like seeing people who are more holy than ourselves. It makes us feel mad. I'd wager he, he this is just hypothesizing here, but I bet his brothers picked on him a lot, even though he was the oldest. But I could be wrong. But what's interesting is despite the fact that he grew up with Jesus and he did not believe in Jesus, nonetheless, we're told that after Christ was resurrected from the dead, he goes to see James before he goes to see any of the apostles. That's what we're told in 1 Corinthians. So James, we, we don't get the story in Scripture of his coming to faith. We don't get the story of his rise to prominence. We're just suddenly introduced to the fact that he's a bigwig, a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. You might actually say that he was the apostle's pastor. Because you see, uh, in Acts 12, when Peter has been imprisoned and he gets miraculously escaped, escorted out of jail. The, the angel does the, uh, the jailbreak for him. And uh, he shows up at John Mark's mother's house, Mary. And after they're in awe of the fact that he's been there, what does Peter say before he you know, has to hightail it out of there? Go tell James and the others. Very early on, you see Peter acknowledging that James was someone of consequence. And in the book of Galatians, Paul says that James is one of the three pillars of the church. That he is a key leader. And so when James comes, or when, G, uh, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem uh, in Acts 21 at the end, it, it's considered a big deal that Paul gets like a, special audience with James. And of course, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which you might call the first general assembly of the church, everybody there talks, but who's the one with the last word? James. And you see his authority that he stands up and after hearing everybody, he goes, my judgment is this. Now, that does not mean my opinion. Brothers, I submit for your consideration, my thoughts are just as authoritative as your thoughts. No, my this is my verdict. And they all said, yeah, that sounds good, and they went along with it. James was a bigwig in the church. Why do I mention all that? Did you really need to know that to understand this letter? What, what is lacking here in this verse 1? Any of that. 
What you see here is a guy who introduces himself simply as James. He's not concerned to tell you how authoritative he is. He's not concerned to tell you how important he is, though he's both. Here is a man who wants you to understand that fundamentally at the end of the day, he is one of the brothers. And that theme of brothers, 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 brothers runs throughout this book. He wants you to understand that he's one of you. He's one of us. What do we learn from that? Well, you see right here the lack of pretension, the humility that should characterize us all. If James, someone who more than anyone else could have laid claim to being close to Jesus because he grew up with him. He's the first person Jesus goes to see. He could have laid claim to how important he was or how determinative his voice was. Instead, he's James. James what? A slave. A servant. We translate that servant, but understand that's a softening of that word for our delicate Western palates. It means slave. And slavery looks different in different times and different places, but what is the key bottom line common thing that all slaves have in common? They are not self-determining. So James one who could have claimed great pedigree, great title, great status, instead wants you to understand that he understands that fundamentally he belongs to Jesus. He doesn't say, Jesus, my brother. He wants you to know it's Jesus, Lord and God. And, and in fact, this introduction is unique when it says a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how it has, we, our English version introduces and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the word the is not there. In fact, it is the only New Testament greeting that begins in such a way that there's no articles and it very legitimately could be translated James, a servant of Jesus Christ, God and Lord. Now, why don't we translate it that way? Well, because it could also be translated the way it is translated, and, and translators want consistency, so all the other epistles look like that, so that's how they do it. But understand that James does something unique by not including any articles in the grammatical forms, he could very well be saying, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, God and Lord. God, of course, could refer to a person. It could refer to an object of worship. But the key thing here that he wants you to understand is that Jesus is his Lord. He is the one who calls the shots. That begs a question. Do you see yourself principally as a servant of Jesus? 
Do you see yourself as a servant of God? Who calls the shots in your life? What calls the shots? Do you live in accordance with your own agenda, with your own desires? Or do you see yourself, your being, as being a life to be lived in light of another's claims on you? This isn't isolated to this verse. Indeed, doesn't Paul tell us multiple times that we are not our own? In fact, in Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Yeah, we belong to Jesus. We've been bought with a price. And he wants you to know this. And the rest of this book is going to be hard if we think for a minute that our lives are our own. Living out the ethic of the Christian life is really, really tough. Nigh impossible if you think that you call the shots for you. But if your life is meant to be lived for the glory of another, in service to another, then suddenly you see the, not only the impetus, but the enablement. God's right to tell you to hold your tongue sometimes. God's right to tell you to show honor to the have-nots sometimes. God's rights are precisely because he has bought us. He owns us and he delivers us. But second of all, this passage is going to explain to you how we live in relationship with the world. And so in the second part of this verse, he addresses the recipients to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. All right, this was an early book of the New Testament. And what we see early on in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, is that on the very day that Stephen is murdered, on that day, a great persecution breaks out against the church. And they spread. And we're told in verse 4 that everywhere they go, they're preaching and they're proclaiming. But the little caveat we learned from chapter 11 is that everywhere they went preaching, they were speaking only to Jews. But then a few verses later, but a few of them broke from that tendency, and that's how the church in Antioch is planted. So when James writes his letter, he's writing primarily to a church that is the majority vote is still ethnic Jew, and Gentile Christians have only started coming in. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a combined church with a primarily ethnic Jewish background. The focus here that you need to hear is that he understood that while the audience he was writing was primarily ethnic Jew, it was not exclusively ethnic Jew. And what does he say? To the 12 tribes. Now this here picks up on a theme that, that we see repeated in the New Testament. You see it said explicitly by Paul in, Jay, in, uh, in Galatians where the whole church, the whole people of God, the whole assembly of Yahweh is the Israel of God. 
The Israel of God is not just ethnic Jew. The, the church has not replaced Israel. No, the assembly of God is Jew and Gentile together. And so when Paul writes that in, in Romans chapter 10 and 11, that all Israel will be saved, it's referring to the sum total of the elect from the Gentile world and the Jewish world. All of that together is Israel. But what does he do here by calling us the 12 tribes? He's tying us into the Old Testament story. Reminding us that we are part of a story, we're part of a plan that's been in place, that's been in motion, that's been enacted centuries, millennia before. So what we are going through is not new. God's plan that has now been revealed in this age is not something that is actually unheard of before. We are part of a story. And oh yeah, we're in the dispersion. The diaspora, it, it harkens back, it was first used to refer to the Jews who were forced into exile when first Samaria fell to the Assyrians and then when, the, when, when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians. And, and since the, those, that time, ever since that time, the majority of ethnic Jews have lived outside of the land we call Palestine today. A little trivia for you. But over time... The concept of dispersion was a word picture association with simply living somewhere other than your home. And so by the time we get into the New Testament, into the epistles, we see James here, and then later you're going to see Peter and 1 Peter refer to our existing on the earth as being in a dispersion. What does that mean? That's their way of drawing Old Testament language to what we're also told plainly. We are sojourners on this earth. We are not at home. And if you've ever been in a place that's not your home, you know that there's always a degree of tentativeness. You're not quite comfortable. You're not, you're not settled. Life in this world can be tenuous. And it's precisely that that's going to be addressed by James later in this letter. But he wants us to understand from the outset. We are not our own. And we are not at home. The Lord God has saved us and he's called us to himself. But we are not home yet. So expect difficulty. Expect hardship and expect a difficult road and if you understand that that you're not your the boss of you and you're not the one who determines your course and and, and that you're in a place precisely because God has you there in a time and a season for a reason now you're getting to where you can start seeing why living out the ethic of the kingdom of God as one of his emissaries there suddenly makes sense. And so, brothers and sisters, as we study this book, we're going to see a lot of practical ways that our faith shapes how we live. But remember, 
What's driving it is the awareness that we have been bought. We are not our own. So Jesus has a legitimate, rightful claim to tell us what to do. And we're not home. So don't, quite frankly, don't whine and cry when life gets hard. Understand hardship is part of the package. We're not home yet. Things aren't going to be perfect until we're on heaven's blissful shore. Those realities inform James's argument throughout. And I hope it'll help you come back next week for more. Because next week we're going to get into what, what I was going to talk about until I realized, oh yeah, we need to talk about the intro. So come back next week and we're going to actually look at a passage in reverse. You'll see why. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for James, for his letter, for his ministry in the early church, for his testimony of profound humility, for his legacy of putting your people and the good of your church above his own self-interest. We ask that as we read his letter, we would be reminded that we are part of that same family. We are part of the 12 tribes in the dispersion. We are not home. We have been bought by you. So help us to live as your people. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.